0: This episode is brought to you by Dragon Ball Legends, the mobile fighting game based on the Dragon Ball series. Featuring high-quality 3D graphics and authentic voice acting, the game follows Shallot, an original character, and his adventures with Goku and others. With intuitive controls and simple card-based gameplay, unleash combos and powerful team-based attacks. Battle players around the world in friendly matches, compete in the rankings, or team up in co-op. And now Dragon Ball Legends 5th Anniversary is on. Download Dragon Ball Legends today.
1: Welcome back to Humans of Purpose, the weekly podcast featuring conversations with local purpose-driven leaders. Leaders creating social impact through their work and fostering a new era of social progress. We want you to listen, connect, and grow with us. Learn more at humansofpurpose.com. Having spent eight years living in places like India and China
2: and Cambodia, it is completely unacceptable to me that in a wealthy country like Australia, we are leaving kids to wait. And, and what happens is, if you think about particularly communication, most kids are picked up at about the age of four, three or four. They're, they're forced to wait 18, 24 months by the time they get any benefit of that therapy. They're already deep into the school year and they're behind their peers
1: um and they can't form friendships welcome back to humans of purpose i'm really pleased to announce that humans of purpose has partnered with digital agency and major season sponsor neon treehouse neon treehouse are a bold and creative team delivering bright and imaginative solutions in the digital space you'll have seen us start to ramp up and be more active and responsive on social media this is an area that I've been wholly deficient in to date, so I'm very grateful for the support from the Neon Treehouse crew. You'll start to hear more about Neon Treehouse as part of our programming too, and the great impact they are having in the digital marketing world. Now on to today's guest. Today I'm pleased to be joined by Wei Yeo. Wei is the co-founder and CEO of Umbo. Umbo is a social enterprise, an online platform that connects allied health professionals to children who are at least able to access these services. Wei is also the Chair and Managing Director of OIC Australia, who support the development of speech therapy in Cambodia. He is a pro bono Impact 25 winner and has a fascinating background in terms of the extensive travel and overseas development work he has done. Beyond all of this, he is now dabbling in stand-up comedy and continues to stretch himself to try and improve at new things. This was a great conversation that took place over Zoom. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Wei as much as I did. Welcome to Humans of Purpose, Way. It's fantastic to have you. Thank you, Mike. I really appreciate it. Where do we find you tonight? Uh, I'm not in lockdown, which is very
2: nice and very privileged. I, I'm in Haymarket, which is in Sydney, um, and still at the office, Haymarket HQ, a co-working space that I work at.
1: Terrific. Um, well, look, I think there's so much to talk about tonight. Uh, I'd really love for you to just give a little bit of um texture to your journey and experience and your both career and personal and how you got to where you are today and then we can unpack that slowly throughout the conversation.
2: Yeah well I mean like a lot of people that end up in different um, occupations my career has been anything but linear. I actually trained as a physiotherapist after I left school and thought that one day I would be the physio for the Australian Wallabies or the Brazilian women's speech volleyball team, and ended up doing nothing even close as glamorous as any of those jobs. <laughs> <laughs> Worked in a hospital primarily with geriatric patients. Um, <laughs> yeah, pretty much the antithesis of what I thought I was going to do.
1: Yeah, it's um, um, it's a bit diametrically uh, opposite so far, but I'm, I'm, I'm guessing it gets better.
2: <laughs> hmm. That's We'll leave that to listeners.
1: Um, and. And then
2: after that, I uh, realised that I didn't want to be a physio when I grew up, so I took a couple of years of travel around Vietnam, uh, most of Southeast Asia. I lived in China for about a year studying Mandarin, and I had some really crazy experiences and learned a lot, I think, about what life is like for the majority of the world. And coming out of my Sydney bubble, that was really important to me. And also, I think, to be able to relate to a whole bunch of different people. And when my bank account got dry... I had to come back to Australia and I ended up working in a charity. I studied international development and then I went back out to work in China. And what I experienced was very typical, I think, of the typical charity that it was very much about this charity making itself perpetuate and continuing its work. And I was really there to justify them getting more funding. Um, and I was very disillusioned by the end of that contract. So I quit. I... Um, well, I finished my contract, I went to Cambodia mostly to find something that made sense. I really wanted to help people, but I hadn't yet put my finger on something that really aligned with what I wanted to do. And then I heard about this huge need for speech therapy, and that's when I started OIC Cambodia.
1: That's an incredible story. What was it like um, running a charity or being part of a charity in China?
2: Very restrictive because the Chinese government is very controlling as to what you can and cannot see so an example is we were doing a program where we were training up these people who worked in orphanages on how to work with people kids with disabilities up to 90 percent of the kids in orphanages had disabilities and we were taken around by the government to see orphanages throughout and if, if anyone's ever spent in China time in China particularly doing business or working with corporations or government you know that they put on these dinners which are astronomical in size and embarrassing in food wastage Mm -hmm. so a a group of 12 of us would have 36 to 48 dishes between all of us it's insane the amount of wastage we'd finish off about 15 percent and then they'd taken us to these orphanage as of these orphanages which were um you you know that scene in big that movie with tom uh, hanks where he's running on the piano and (laughs) in a toy shop yeah it was kind of like that like the the level Mm -hmm. of technology technological advancement and the level of care and money that were in these orphanages were just so unrepresentative of what actual orphanages were like but they were showing us what they thought we wanted to see and that didn't really help our our work so it was very challenging in lots of ways but I mean I was also very critical and have continued to be critical of the nature of that charity in terms of that perpetuation that I mentioned before and something I'm really just very against is the idea that Charities should be here to shrink. You know, an ideal charity is one that has a specific end date, a specific time where it says we're no longer needed. And yet that is so rare. I can really count on one or two hands. You never hear that.
1: The number of that. charities in the world. You never yeah. hear that. Actually live that. Yeah. It's all about growth, I mean, growth, growth. And then I think you've got to sort of ask the question with the growth focus, you um, are we growing because we're actually solving the problem? Because shouldn't we be shrinking if we're solving the problem? Or is the problem getting bigger and we're not actually tackling it properly?
2: Yeah. And, and I often wonder why that you know message of growth permeates throughout charity work. Because within 30 seconds of conversation with anyone, you work out that that's not logical. And I wonder if it's come from the corporate sector. And it's come from everything else in our lives these days that we see bigger as better. We talk about scale and growth all the time. And Again, it doesn't
1: make sense with a charity. I actually think that it does definitely come from corporate culture and I think there's been a big trend in um, not-for-profits in Australia definitely to commercialise and become a lot more commercial. Um, And I also think that you're seeing a lot more people who are actually really unhappy in the corporate sector being worked um, to the bone coming across and and getting executive roles in the charity sector. And so they bring with them that culture of um, not just high performance but profit maximisation and isn't it interesting
2: though that um i remember um reading a book was talking about non-profit leadership being transferable to um to for-profit but that move hasn't happened on mass you don't see people with good non-profit experience being taken up by westpac for example um despite the fact that you have to do a lot of things as a non-profit leader which are really hard to do mobilizing all these people without any financial incentives so i wonder if in the future as we this understanding of the difference between nonprofits and for-profits matures, we'll see more of a movement of people who have non-profit experience moving into for-profit.
1: Yeah, I think that would be a really useful migration because when I talk to people and having worked pretty closely with not-for-profit CEOs, I mean, I think comparing the need to satisfy so many different diverse and competing stakeholders versus just grappling with a balance sheet and a PL and and shareholders, completely different ballgame. And the level of complexity jump um, to doing that is just really astronomical. Yeah. Yeah. Hopefully we'll see that change. Hopefully. So, look, let's talk a little bit about Cambodia. I mean, I'm curious, why did you decide to go to Cambodia? I've been there. I think it's an incredibly special country, incredibly special people. Um, and tell me about sort of starting up OIC in 2013 there. Sure. Um- Cambodia was simply because
2: I was looking for a job, and my logic was: I want to go somewhere where I can network my way into a job because applying online wasn't working for me, and it was too faceless. And I really wanted to understand and get to know a sector and people first. And so, what was a place that I knew was relatively close to Australia in case I had to come back home, and then also was cheap to live. It was sort of like you know, put it put a small bet out there rather than a big one. And then it was literally someone said, "Oh." lots of need with disability in Cambodia, you should try that and booked a flight and off we went. And, and when I was there, one of the things I saw early on was in contrast to what I saw in China, really true bottom-up development where um, people in communities in rural parts of Cambodia understood what local people really needed. And even though they had never been to university or even learned about concepts like disability formally, their conceptual understanding of disability was far superior to a lot of people, including myself, possibly, that had gone to university and studied these sorts of things. Um, and then with with OIC, to me, it was just, I, I'm definitely not the first person to identify the need for speech therapy, even though my background is physiotherapy. Um, there, there is physiotherapy in Cambodia. There was physiotherapy back then. And it seems like there's a pecking order in terms of allied health professions where unfortunately speech tends to get dropped a little bit down towards the bottom so people had identified the need for a long time but they hadn't really worked out a way I think to comprehensively get this profession
1: started so how do you do speech therapy in a country where I guess most of the population speak Khmer do you speak Khmer I do
2: um I mean, it's terrible now that I've lived in Australia for a few years, but at one point it was decent enough. And there's no way to say this without sounding like I'm bragging, but it was just an incredible life opportunity where I was invited to speak um, Khmer on a uh, government TV uh, radio station on a panel show without oh, disability. Wow. wow! Yeah, it's one of these moments where I was sitting there, you know, with this hot pink background, very unfashionable, <laughs> disgusting background. And I was thinking to myself, I am in a foreign country on their TV station, speaking their language. This is just so bizarre. And I really that, want yeah. to
1: enjoy the experience. That, that's wild. That's, that, that's just amazing scenery in my mind. Yeah. <laughs> there's, a, there's a couple of photos floating around the internet if you look closely enough. But to, to go to
2: the question about how do you do speech therapy? L- let me answer that by saying how you don't do speech therapy. And that's the way that had been done, really, by volunteers flying across to Cambodia, doing their couple of weeks in a village. And that's the teacher, teach one, teach someone to fish model. Sorry, that's give someone a fish model. The second one is teach someone to fish. And that's when people go across to capacity build and work with local people. Now, that's better than the first, but it's not enough because it doesn't plug into anything. There's still no university course, government understanding. It still happens at the behest of the foreigners, really, in their leave, which is great that they're doing it. Um, And the model that we try and follow is build up a fishing industry with Cambodian people, or in this case, a speech therapy industry. So we're talking about getting them to have infrastructure, things like university courses, government policy, awareness, um, professional bodies, these things that will outlast our time in Cambodia.
1: So it's about capacity building and creating the institutions that are continuing to help tackle the problem.
2: Yeah, and, and then thinking about how do we get this, um what we want to see to perpetuate itself after we're gone. So I mentioned before, there are very few organisations with defined exit strategies. Um, OIC says we will exit in 2030. Um, I will caveat, they might be delayed by COVID, but we will exit around 2030 um, when we see a 100 speech therapists integrated into the public sector. And so what that means is that we have... Started off the professional, got it from zero to 100, arguably the hardest point. We have awareness, we've got university courses, we've got government policy.
1: Let's see them take it um, without us beyond that. That's very exciting. Look, I mean, the Cambodia thing is maybe, uh, and the China thing sort of draws me to the question around how do you decide what challenges you're going to take on?
2: You know, I, I, that's a very tough question to answer succinctly. I, for me, you know, I was, I was born in Australia, grew up in Australia. We have always in Australia been very good traditionally about that idea of the underdog. Um, you could argue that's changing politically in some senses, but I still think the fabric of the culture is very much the underdog. And that's why certain, you know, football teams are hated more than others, depending on your code. There's that particular one, um, is it Collingwood with AFL? I think that's a sense yeah, but I'm not, I could be wrong. Yeah, okay. very,
1: very well hated team. And
2: part part of that is because, I guess, other fans see the success they've had, right? It's not because they're actually bad. So, you know, that underdog thing for me is really important that I, I've never wanted to work for a cause which is has a lot of support because I believe that other people can do that. But with my time on earth, I really want to do things that very few people are interested in and therefore needs more attention. It's not that they are less worthy causes. I don't think you can... Um, dichotomize them like that. But I think that some things just tend to be more visible. And therefore, the causes that are less visible require really, really passionate people.
1: So it's it's a bit, to me, sounds like you're a gap finder by nature. You're sort of analyzing problems and sort of saying, what is something that is maybe not a sexy thing to solve? Because they're already sort of top shelf items. But it's about digging a little bit deeper and sort of saying, what are the things that are maybe in an iceberg model, two-thirds beneath the surface that we can really start to address to influence some really great social change.
2: Yeah, and I think I can probably relate a lot of that back to parenting, um, how I was parented as a kid, um, and and possibly yourself too, Mike, and, and any listeners, the phrase, you know, oh, for example, I want to go to that party. Oh, okay, why? Because Chris is going, well, if Chris was to jump off the Harbour Bridge or equivalent bridge, if Chris was to jump off XYZ building, would you do the same thing? And our parents were very big on critical thinking, which is very, I'll say, very unusual for Chinese heritage background. Um, But they were very, very good at that. And I think that was something that I've always brought forward into adulthood about, yeah, as you said, analysing what is really worthy of my time versus what isn't.
1: I love that. Talking about OIC and just the relationship between OIC and a happy kids clinic, a social enterprise, I'd love to hear just about how that's sort of evolved and grown.
2: Yeah, well, both of these institutions are struggling a little bit with COVID. That's the first thing I'll say. But I will also say I'm very proud of both these organisations because of the integrity that they show and also the way that the social enterprise works really well with the charity. A lot of charities want to get into social enterprise as a a concept, as an idea, um, but it can be quite tacked on. So obviously, we've got the charity, OIC, that is creating the profession of speech therapy, takes philanthropic money to do so. And then with Happy Kids, it's a for-profit social purpose enterprise that provides speech therapy and occupational therapy to kids in Phnom Penh, in the capital, and then donates 100% of that profit to the charity, to OIC, when it is profitable, which has so far been challenging, um, and more challenging during COVID. But, but beyond that that top line level, it's, it's actually everything else. So... OIC as an organization tries to avoid tries to avoid getting into the game of doing service delivery because that creates dependency. But that's not a problem for happy kids. So when Happy Kids does service delivery for those who can afford, it's creating assessment tools, resources, doing research that can feed into OIC. Um, every time Happy Kids uh, advertises for its services, it's raising awareness of speech therapy for the charity and to a certain segment. So I think it was the second week that Happy Kids started, we had a government official bring his daughter in to be seen. And, you know, by the end of it, he was so happy with the service he received. He said, you know, in terms of what you're trying to do, it's really incredible. And if I can help in any way, let us know. So I think it's a really, really good blend of using the the unique skill set and assets, I guess, of the charity with a social enterprise together.
1: Social enterprise is notoriously one of the most difficult models to make work um, and to to make one work in partnership with a not-for-profit, which is also really hard to get working and, um, you know, know, growing in uh, revenue positive. It seems to me you've got a bit of a penchant for trying really hard things. Is that sort of something that's um, – I mean, even if I just talk about moving to China and being part of a charity there, moving to Cambodia or learning Khmer, is this something that sort of comes from childhood as well or is this sort of the innate part of your personality? I'm glad you didn't use the phrase sucker for punishment, but
2: that's, all, that's more <laughs> what I was thinking. You just said it in a more diplomatic way. <laughs> um, I'd, say, I'd say it definitely does come from childhood and, you know, genetics and whatever else. But, you know, I'm, I'm the youngest of three boys. So I, you know, statistically, I'm the risk taker in the family. Um, I also now, just in the last year, have started um, in my spare time doing stand-up comedy, which is the biggest form of risk taking anybody could take, in my And opinion. that
1: is the, the biggest form of risk taking, I think, on the planet. I mean, I have huge respect for that.
2: Yeah. Um, of course, because you, you face all sorts of challenges and when things don't go right, it's potentially soul-crushing, but you've got to work out a way to get past that. And things don't go right fairly often, I say. So, um, yeah, I think I think it is about that. But I think it's also, to be honest, that the story that I told of going through physio and not really enjoying that experience for me was very um, important, I think, for, for me to kickstart into something more meaningful. But I do remember the day was I was actually driving to work when I was working as a physio, and a thought entered my head Maybe I should swerve into the oncoming traffic because then I'd have an accident and something interesting would happen in my life.
0: This episode is brought to you by Dragon Ball Legends, the mobile fighting game based on the Dragon Ball series. Featuring high-quality 3D graphics and authentic voice acting, the game follows Shalot, an original character, and his adventures with Goku and others. With intuitive controls and simple card-based gameplay, unleash combos and powerful team-based attacks. Battle players around the world in friendly matches, compete in the rankings, or team up in co-op. And now Dragon Ball Legends' fifth anniversary is on. Download Dragon Ball Legends today. You know, And I caught
2: myself with that very dark thought. And I, and I thought, I've got to do something about this because mm. this is not tenable. So I think you've, like, you know, we've we so many ups and downs in, as entrepreneurs and in this sector and any sector, really. But it's those downs that really teach you lessons about how you want to spend the rest of your time. And sometimes you've got to hit rock bottom. To catapult you into doing something really useful, but that for me was all right. I have time now on this planet to do something. I'm not just going to do anything; it's got to be something I really believe in.
1: Wait, how is um, comedy going?
2: <laughs> um, it's it's going okay. Yeah, it's uh, I've only done well. We had COVID last year, and I started in March, so wipe out most of last year. Um, I've probably done about twelve or thirteen performances in total. That's not a lot. It takes a long time. Um, but I think for me, it's going well because I'm getting a good response and I seem to be getting more and more gigs and offers. But also, I see the improvement. And then as importantly, if not more importantly, selfishly, I'm getting a lot out of it, where I manage to look at the world in a new in a new light. You know, the world work that we do can be very depressing if you want it to be. But thinking about material all the time just pulls you out of that mindset.
1: So how do you come up with stuff? Do you do you write a lot and sort of, um, you know, create material?
2: I write every day, at least 20
1: minutes, every, every morning, first thing in the morning.
2: And basically the system goes from observing things that are very rough as ideas. So you might see something, hear something. It becomes a note in my phone. And then that idea then becomes a theme, which I categorize into different types of themes. Um, it's a little bit, and that comes into a set. And then i obviously refine the set and I'll test it out in a very low stakes situation and then gradually gets higher and higher stakes. Um, and in terms of ideas, you know, one of the things I've learned is just has to be authentic. You know, you can't make up stories, you can't make up beliefs and opinions you don't believe in. If, if it's not true, it doesn't work
1: well. I love it. We could talk, we could spend a long time talking about comedy. I've actually it's often thought about trying it out. I think that's something that will you've inspired me a little bit to maybe consider trying once our lockdown loops here. Yeah, I mean, um, Melbourne I think would be a great place to try because I hear that it's much better than Sydney, where I am based.
2: Um, and I would hundred percent recommend if anyone's listening as well do some uh, do a course. That's what I did. So I did an eight week course at the beginning, and the structure that it gives you is
1: very very useful. Fantastic. So look, we probably should talk a bit about Umbo, which is the main reason you're on the podcast tonight. (laughs) So maybe talk a little bit about Umbo and then I'd like to get into starting to discuss what is the problem that Umbo was created to solve and for whom? And um, also just around why, like why has Umbo chosen to solve the problem in this particular way also? Sure. Um, When when I worked as a physio,
2: I did, placements out in Western New South Wales and I remember hearing at the time the wait times to be seen by occupational therapists and speech therapists was about 18 months and what I realised when I came back from Cambodia in 2017 was that actually hadn't shifted at all. We consistently hear 12 months but we've heard up to 18 months before in different parts of the country and having spent eight years living in places like India and China and Cambodia it is completely unacceptable to me that in a wealthy country like Australia, we are leaving kids to wait. And and what happens is, if you think about particularly communication, most kids are picked up at about the age of four, three or four, they're they're forced to wait 18, 24 months by the time they get any benefit of that therapy. They're already deep into the school year and they're behind their peers um, and they can't form friendships. Research shows that 60% Of juvenile offenders have some kind of communication difficulty, which is just the kind of future that we are um, giving our kids by making them wait. So the the way in which we're trying to solve it is we want to unlock supply. It's actually that simple, supply of clinicians. We know they're not in that locality, but they are around Australia. In general, it is very hard to recruit um, speech and occupational therapists. Um, There's a statistic that says over 95% of practices struggle to recruit both. And so we've got to think about ways in which we can unlock it that suits the type of person that we want to hire. And so what we found typically is that they actually happen to be mums. 97% of speech therapists are female in Australia, and they often have young kids.
1: Hold on, 97%. 97%, which
2: is hugely problematic.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's, that's a crazy breakdown yeah it's i mean it, it doesn't make any sense
2: to have any gender so heavily dominated in any industry so it i think it's
1: a huge problem personally So um, sorry why do you think that men aren't attracted to speech therapy um
2: it's hard to say I, I mean i think it's probably one of these things where it's critical mass it gets to a point where it doesn't become attractive you know if you want why would you want to be one of three percent i mean obviously these industries are in typically caring industries Physiotherapy is slightly more skewed towards men because a lot of them think, that, like me, they're going to end up doing stuff in sport and sporting teams and never do. But that's the image that they're sold perhaps. So, um, yeah, I, I don't know why. I mean, I think, I do think it's a problem though, because I think if well, a lot of kids with disabilities are boys and boys often relate better to male therapists, well, good luck trying to find one for your kid
1: mm. if there's only
2: 3%. So it's
1: very problematic. So, so sorry, I completely derailed your response there. I was sort of keen to get a sense of why you're choosing to solve the problem the way that you are.
2: Yeah, well, so if we can get this supply of clinicians to be connected to the um, to the kids, we can cut these wait times down to hopefully as little as a week, and then we can get them seen quicker, and they, their outcomes are far better when they go to school in their communities and so forth. Um, now, obviously, that involves technology. But for us, it's been an interesting learning experience, to be honest, about trying to step back from that technology as much as we can and just get the core fundamentals of the operating business correct and then try and exhaust as much as we can in that area before even thinking about technology somewhere down the track.
1: Now, you've sort of mentioned before that you believe that charities should um, sort of render themselves extinct at a certain point. So with, yeah. with that in mind, I'd like to ask you a bit about your vision for the future for Umbo.
2: Yeah, that is such a good question. So I'm just fixing my light dipping into the camera. Um, that is a great question because we get questions at the moment and, and it is a, it is a non, sorry, it's a for-profit social enterprise structure. So, We have shareholders who are the founders mm-hmm. and we get the question about, you know, would you sell? And, and what, what do you see as your future involvement? And for us, you know, at this stage, and it might change, we're very protective about the integrity of the purpose. So, selling doesn't seem like that's likely unless it was the perfect person that's, you know, to be seen. Um, should a social enterprise make itself redundant? Um, I think this I'm cheating a little bit, but I think what it should do ideally is change the structural reasons and implications for that um, inequality in the first place. And I'll be 100% honest, we are not doing that at the moment, but we are only three years old. So to think we can even start to address that, we just don't understand the structure yet. But if we're not creating a systemic change, we're actually at risk of perpetuating the problem. So we talk about the inequality between rural and urban. Most of our clinicians live in cities. Most of the families are in rural. So what we're actually doing at the moment, we could argue is, taking resources not from the rural communities but we're keeping them in the city right because that's where the clinicians are being paid and that's where knowledge and so forth is so one of the things we try and do is we try and upskill rural practices so that they can go further afield so rather than saying you know you're just doing your 200 kilometer radius imagine if you go beyond that that's part of the answer but i don't think it's a fully fleshed out answer yet
1: well, I think that's a bit of a game changer, given what we know about the rural-urban um, divide and the inequality that's caused by that gap. I think that would be a substantial contribution if you could, you know, make part of that difference.
2: Hopefully, I mean it's it's very it's very daunting to think about how we would do it, but I, to be honest with you, I wouldn't be satisfied if we were remotely part of the problem and perpetuating the problem. So it's just something to think about
1: in the future or as we go. You really are pretty hard on yourself, way. <laughs> um, for punishment as they say yeah, yeah absolutely <laughs> um so what has your experience been like as an ndis registered service provider
2: oh uh, look it's challenging we just went for our second audit in march and um the numbers that i'm hearing from our people is it takes about three months of one person's time to do an audit plus by the way you've got to pay for an order which to me makes zero sense but um It's been very challenging. I think the NDIS, as a concept, I still believe in it. I think it's a really great concept, Um, but I think it has definitely failed in many aspects. The NDIS partly was was there to provide choice and control, and that means that you have a whole bunch of essentially smaller providers providing the services rather than block funding, which is what we had before. I think in many ways we've kind of shifted back to block funding because we've got a dominance with bigger providers who can afford to absorb these costs that it, it, it takes to be part of that system that small providers either don't bother with or fail. Um, the statistic is that I think it's around 61 or 63% of providers do not make money out of the NDIS. It's not profitable for them to be part of this scheme. You know, so where's the longevity and sustainability of that if you don't have profitable providers? Um, so it's been challenging.
1: Yeah, it's quite interesting because then you hear these scathing reports in the media about how much how we've spent way too much on the NDIS, but it's yeah. clearly not going to the right place.
2: Yeah, and and I think you know in the past we've we've underspent budgets. I don't know what the latest ones are, but I know it was a couple of years ago, historically we were, I think we we're underspending about fifty percent of the budget, and that was seen as something good. But that's, that's not good. It's, it's not good because that budget is, exists because people need those services. So what you're saying by saying we're underspent 50% is half people are not getting what they need. That's, that's not a good thing to boast about at all. Um, and I think people do see the high costs in terms of the, the rate that clinics make. But I can say on the other side, 100%, I've seen where that goes and, and the time and money involved with the upkeep of being a part of the
1: system. It's easily swallowed up. Well said. So a point of interest for me is how does UMBO ensure truly high fidelity person-centered care?
2: Yeah. So I guess one of the things to talk about, so we are entirely online. I didn't mention that before, but we do 100% online, no face-to-face. The I guess the traditional model or yeah, the lazy model maybe would, would be to take your online therapy and go, right, I'm going to do it with a Zoom account. Um, and it's going to be 100% the same with you know, kids interacting and toys and games and that kind of stuff. The, the problem with that is that it could be argued that that is a model that creates dependency because you're not actually building up the capacity of the family. So person-centred care is you're the expert in your life. Let's say, for example, it's your child. We don't work directly with your child. We work with you. We work with someone else who's in the kid's life, a teacher. And then we build up your capacity and you tell us what the goal is. And again, that's different to historically it's been the therapist saying, you know, your child, your child should be able to say 100 words and they're only saying five. That's not, that's not right, you know, and, and sort of that very top-down method. And so person-centered care is you tell me, well, not the number of words, but what do you want to achieve? Or I want my child to be able to have a conversation with um, peers in his classroom.
1: Okay, well, let's work on that. So it's really about um, goal setting and getting to understand what the person is seeking to achieve as a sort of care outcome.
2: Yeah. And, and working collaboratively on that and not having a medical model that says this is the standard you need to get up to. Um, so we, we try and really stay away from independent assess. So stay away from standardized assessments as much as possible. The only problem is that at times they are necessary for funding, to be honest, it's, uh, you know, to tick boxes, but we really try and stay away from that.
1: Um um' both grown significantly from a team of four to fifteen and helped hundreds of Australian families access therapy online. What do you attribute this um this really impressive growth curve to? It, I mean part of it is time. i
2: I think it's really when we talk about stories of growth, um everyone wants to have a magic formula or the thing that you know did made the biggest difference. But I honestly think it's time spent wisely on things like structure and um, solidifying the fundamentals. And if you can survive, then things will happen almost to you. You know, if I think about the main contributors to growth, did we create them? Not really. But were we in a position to accept these things? Absolutely. Along with all of the, the things that went the other way. You know, we, we could absorb all the, the pain as well as all of the, the pleasure as well. Um, So I think that's really important. Like COVID obviously renewed an interest in online therapy. Has COVID helped overall? Um, I think the jury's out. I think the jury's out because people did do what I said before about starting therapy online using a Zoom account and then people got really bad experiences. And so I think now that we're, you know, back to normal in some senses in a lot of parts of Australia, most people um, actually want to go back to -to face-to-face. They're very averse to online.
1: Well, congratulations on the growth. Um, Another point of interest for me is your kind of desire to tackle underdog or hidden causes. Is this something that's likely to continue into the future beyond speech therapy? Are there other challenges that you'd really like to address or work on? And I'm sure your brain's ticking all the time about what are the sort of gaps that you could look at? Absolutely, yeah. There's always,
2: you know, I'm sure you're, you're the same. You know, you do so many different things. It's like there's just not enough time, right? So I, I guess it's thinking to me about how do I have the most impact? And as a physiotherapist, one of the reasons why I left, apart from other ones, apart from not being the Brazilian women's beach volleyball physio, was that <laughs> I I had one-to-one impact, and I could see this incredible impact. Where, for example, on day one of seeing someone, they couldn't sit, and on day 25, they're up and walking by themselves. And that's really great. And I admire people that have the patience to do that. But it seemed for me too direct, too one-on-one. I wanted to have effect for a lot more. So one of the things that I've been thinking about is with our work in Cambodia, which is facing a tough time, what if that all fails and what survives? And I think there's something to be said about the idea, even the idea of exit strategies and the idea that I promoted in my TEDx talk of charities being redundant that as a concept survives well beyond our time on earth and beyond charity's time and so on. So maybe there's something in that that I can do in terms of um, inspiring people to think about charities differently. And then with Umbo, you know, once I have a bit more time with Umbo, how do we think about social enterprise differently? Maybe there's a way to link that up as well.
1: Yeah, I think that's really interesting. I, I think there's certainly a space for thought leadership around making it like a charter, like we commit to, closing the charity by this date and setting really clear goals around what success looks like and then what comes after. So what's the, what's the next step in that evolution? So we've, we've run a charity, we've addressed the social cause, we've achieved some kind of structural law um, change in, in the market. Um, do we then become a social enterprise? Is it just complete scale down? That's a really very interesting space.
2: I'd be interested to know, cause obviously you've seen a lot of this. Um, have you seen many others, and if not, why does that mindset not common?
1: You don't. Um, you often hear thought leaders talking about how it's important to make charities not exist at some point in the future. So understanding the limited lifespan of a charity. But when you work with um, CEOs, executive teams, and boards, um, there's just this perverse counter incentive to continue the legacy. And um, I think that's where y- you find, um, look, all of these problems that organisations have are essentially human psychological problems. And it's that, it's that tension between wanting to leave a great legacy and for the, for the ride to continue versus are we really having an impact or is it time to pull the plug and um, let other players, you know, pick up the slack or maybe time to hand over to government or whatnot. So there's certainly a tension there and I think we're not any closer to resolving that. That's
2: yeah. I mean, that's that's such a shame, isn't it? Because we've progressed so far with so many things, but it does just it does definitely feel like this is very difficult to action. And even the charities that talk about the idea of becoming redundant, one thing I find is that they and having exit strategies. One thing I find is that they never, literally never, have the the T and the SMART goal, so they never have the time specified. You know, it's just yep, this, this never. vague idea, and, and the goalposts shift all the time. And Having a, it's like anything in life, if you don't have a deadline, you're never going to do it.
1: No, absolutely right. Look, fascinating conversation, Wei. I want to thank you so much for being part of the podcast. How can people connect with you and learn more about your work? Well, there's my own website, which is my name, which is
2: w-e-h-y-e-o-h.com, which is not getting a lot of love at the moment, I will say, but it does exist. Um, looking up, Look up umbo, umbo.com.au. And then in Cambodia, we, it's o i c letters OIC, which doesn't stand, it's not an acronym, but it's actually the OIC that you say when you understand someone. So that's what communication is about. So it's OIC. very clever. Yeah. (laughs) Like to be different. Um, So, uh, yeah. And then so it's OIC Cambodia and there's also OIC Australia. Um, So two two organizations I can look up there.
1: Fantastic. So I'm sure people can get in touch with you via the website if they want to do so yep and um yeah hang around let's have a quick debrief and thanks again for being part of the podcast awesome Awesome. thanks mike if you enjoyed this episode make sure you hit the subscribe button in your podcast player or the link in today's episode notes why not share the podcast with your networks after all 62% of our subscribers come from word of mouth recommendations and social shares You could also leave us a five-star review and some kind words in the iTunes store. If you love what we do each week and want to support the show, you should join our growing community of Patreon supporters or consider becoming a show sponsor. To learn more about all of that, just head to humansofpurpose.com.
0: This episode is brought to you by Dragon Ball Legends, the mobile fighting game based on the Dragon Ball series. Featuring high-quality 3D graphics and authentic voice acting, the game follows Shalot, an original character, and his adventures with Goku and others. With intuitive controls and simple card-based gameplay, unleash combos and powerful team-based attacks. Battle players around the world in friendly matches, compete in the rankings, or team up in co-op. And now Dragon Ball Legends 5th anniversary is on. Download Dragon Ball Legends today.